Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Hello, everybody. This is Chris Starin, the host of Truce. Before this episode gets going, I wanted to let you know that season three is all about the rise of communism and how it impacted the American Christian Church. But I've got a whole bunch of other little things I want to share, including this story today. So when you're done listening to this, go back and start at the beginning of season three. 111 people pushed through the dense jungle of what is now Tanzania. Imagine the heat on your skin. Alligator attacks taking down livestock, swamps, people dying of disease, hungry. 111 men, nowhere near home. Months of this. You get up in the morning, pull on your boots, shoulder your load, walk. A famous missionary was missing somewhere on the African continent. The job of this large band of men, find him, bring him back to civilization, then make a fortune telling the story in books and on the lecture circuit. They were far from the circuit now, far from the padded seats of theaters, the candlelight of adventurer clubs, off the map. At the head of the pack was a white man, one of the few in this expedition. He was famous. He'd lived a Forrest Gump life from orphan to journalist to soldier on both sides of the American Civil War. Both sides. Now he was boot deep in mud. If his men upset him, the explorer used the lash or other cruelties. Wherever they went, they destroyed native villages, burning them to the ground. He fired his gun at indigenous people he thought were mocking him. And they walked for months. Finally, they found the missing missionary, though they were so weak by the time they reached him that it was the missionary who saved them, providing them food. The explorer said, at least in the legend, Dr. Livingston, I presume? He probably didn't say that, but it's a great quote. You've almost certainly heard it before. The explorer with the wild temper and the penchant for violence was Henry Morton Stanley. He just located the legendary missionary-slash-explorer David Livingston. Livingston was supposed to be on expedition for two years, but... By the time they found him, he'd been gone nearly six. This moment is usually described as the heroic accomplishment, and, you know, it kind of was. These guys walked over 700 miles. But as with stories of people who summit Mount Everest, we often forget that it's the porters who do all the heavy lifting and trailblazing. We kind of know this story, this adventure, the romantic vision of pushing yourself to the limits, the age of exploration. But what's more fascinating is what happens next. 
after the story usually ends, after Stanley writes his account. What happened out there in the jungles of Africa lit a spark that ignited a gold rush of sorts. One based on deceit, a false promise of Christian missions, and the death of millions. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Our guest today is Adam Hochschild. He's the author of many books, including King Leopold's Ghost, which is the basis for most of this episode. You'll hear his voice in just a moment. So we know about Henry Morton Stanley and his discovery of Dr. Livingston, but Stanley's other accomplishments were much more important. Stanley was the first person to determine the course of the Congo River. He crossed the continent of Africa from east to west. A lot of that was on the Congo River, which is now in the Democratic Republic of Congo. After all of its traveling, the Congo River hits the Atlantic Ocean after descending a hundred miles of impenetrable rapids, which will be important later. These rapids made it difficult for explorers because you couldn't easily get the boats around them. And boats are a much more efficient way of transporting people and resources than doing it on foot. Henry Morton Stanley explored the Congo River, including going around those rapids. He was the man, the go-to guy when it came to this vast, largely unexplored by white people, massive swath of land. He figured out the path of the Congo River. So Stanley discovered this, and that discovery caught the eye of an extremely ambitious and greedy person in Europe, King Leopold II of Belgium. Who, I'm guessing, you've never heard of before. By the end of this story, you may never forget him. Leopold II was not that excited about being the king of the Belgians. He had uh, become king of his country in 1865 at the age of, of 30. And he was, I think, very frustrated to be uh, a monarch at a time when it wasn't so much fun to be a king anymore because you had to share power with elected parliaments and voters. We're talking the late 1800s, post-revolutions in France and the United States. The slave trade had been largely stopped in Europe and America. Freedom and equality were in the air. 
Belgium was and is this small country. It's half the size of West Virginia. Leopold said of his kingdom, small country, small people. And he wanted some part of the world where he could reign supreme, a colony, and also where he could make a lot of money to do the things he wanted to in Belgium. He was not alone in wanting to spread out, build up some territories. Europe had turned its eye to the African continent, full of natural resources and exotic goods. The European scramble for Africa was underway. This was the era of colonization. Europe claimed lands in Africa, while the United States took over Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and more. Leopold had his plans for this big blank spot on the African map, the part that had just been explored by Henry Morton Stanley. He didn't want to tip his hand to the rest of Europe. He was after the ivory and rubber, the resources. If he let the other European nations know his plan, they'd go after the land too, beat him to the punch with their bigger militaries and more robust populations. So he had an idea. Don't say that you're storming into Africa to gobble up the resources. Instead, frame the whole thing as a humanitarian effort. We're not going to grab resources. We're going to spread the gospel. He was a master of public relations, this king. He could have taught today's tobacco companies a thing or two. He portrayed himself as a generous philanthropist who was engaged in Africa not to make money, but to spread Christianity, to uh, preach the benefits of hard work, to bring civilization, literacy to these poor benighted Africans, and so forth. The whole carefully crafted bait-and-switch would eventually turn on him, but these illusions of goodwill bought him decades to build his personal fortune. In 1876, he organized a geographic conference in Brussels of the brightest minds in geography and exploration. Together, they plotted out where stations would be that offered medical aid and supplies to help the missionary efforts in the Congo. At that meeting, they formed the International African Association. And you don't need to remember that name because it was disbanded pretty quickly. Its sole purpose was much like a shell corporation today, to hide the trail, divert people's attention. He'd create several more with similar sounding names. So many bogus associations that people giving speeches about one organization would sometimes use the name of multiple organizations thinking they were the same thing. They were not. These shell associations also allowed a bit of a magic trick. It appeared that the country of Belgium was behind this magnanimous effort. But really, the profits went to Leopold. Seriously, the companies weren't just about being confusing. They were a way to funnel cash to the king of Belgium. Not the people of Belgium, the king and make it look like he was bringing Christianity and hope to Africa. After this massive PR campaign and public opinion was on his side, Leopold needed someone to head up the operations. There was only one logical answer. Henry Morton Stanley, I presume? You know, our explorer who crossed Africa. Stanley signed a five-year contract with these shell organizations, though for a long time, even he didn't know which one he worked for. 
Remember those rapids at the end of the Congo River? He was to build a road around them on which steamboats could be transported in pieces. Once they got around the rapids, they'd be able to reassemble the boats and start exporting goods. One of Stanley's other jobs was to approach local chiefs and trick them into signing over their land, so that it would now belong to Leopold. Of course, the chiefs couldn't read his language. They didn't have contracts like this in the Congo. So this magic trick was pretty easy. Tell the chiefs the contract was no big deal and then steal their land. It goes a little deeper than that, too. The contracts also gave Stanley and his men the right to use local people to do the work. Not even knowing it, the leaders put their own people into forced labor and signed over their territory. This was forced labor. It wasn't technically slavery because it wasn't handed down generation after generation. But treatment of laborers was about the same. Whippings, kidnappings, burned villages in order to get resources, like rubber. The real source of wealth in the Congo was wild rubber, as I mentioned, which comes not from plantations of rubber trees, but from vines, which are scattered quite widely through the Central African rainforest, twining their way around palm trees and other trees up to where they can get some sunlight. Rubber was a booming industry with tires and gaskets necessary for the Industrial Revolution. Natural rubber can be cultivated in farms, but it takes years to get a viable plant. Leopold saw a chance to get a jump on the market by gathering it from wild vines. People had to scatter uh, quite widely into the forest to find these vines. Sometimes it it took them uh, days to find vines that hadn't been all tapped already. The vines were then drained like you do when you make syrup cut into the vine, and slowly collect the fluid inside. Then the fastest way to process the rubber was to spread the liquid on human skin so that it could dry. When it was dried, you peeled it off, taking hair with it. It would have been quite painful to remove. Africans were forced to do this day after day. To force them to do that, the regime captured uh, their wives held them hostage. And you can see photographs of women hostages in chains uh, in order to force their men to go into the rainforest for days and sometimes weeks at a time, gathering a monthly quota of wild rubber. This was no humanitarian or missionary effort. It was about gathering resources. All the rest of that stuff was just a cover. And who was going to know? Congo was far away from Belgium. How would people back home learn that this was happening? What their king was up to a whole continent away? His magic PR trick was able to hide much of his deviousness. One part of that backfired because in his desire to spread Christianity, which, you know, for for political reasons, he wanted to portray himself as doing that, he allowed uh, missionaries to go to the Congo. Now, The Catholic missionaries who went there were uh, almost all Belgian, some French, mostly Belgian, and they essentially operated as adjuncts of Leopold's private colony. Even training soldiers for Leopold's army. Not the highest point for religious people in Congo to have 
actively participated in forced labor. But Belgium is a heavily Catholic uh, country, so the Protestant missionaries there came mostly from uh, Britain, Sweden, and the United States. And from all three of those countries, there were Protestant missionaries who, once they got to the Congo, not having any ties of loyalty to the king, they were appalled at what they discovered because they had gone to Africa to preach the gospel, but suddenly they found themselves in the middle of a human rights catastrophe. Missionaries witnessed people in chains, wives held hostage, villages burned, all for rubber and ivory. Black men forced to work as soldiers and overseers, punishing their own neighbors. These Protestant missionaries understood that it was their duty to tell the world what was happening. Writing articles and letters to missionary journals in Britain and the United States and Sweden, uh, protesting about this. Their testimony formed a very important part of the enormous protest movement that, that then developed. All of this took time. How do you discredit someone who has made a public show pretending to be the world's greatest humanitarian? It's hard to do. People wanted to believe that the king of the Belgians was a great guy. One of the earliest voices against Leopold was George Washington Williams. He was a black American who had fought in the Civil War. Just on one side. He didn't fight on both like Henry Morton Stanley one side, and you can probably guess which one it was. Been a member of the Ohio State Legislature, was a preacher, a writer, a historian, a journalist, and a, a, an entrepreneur. An accomplished man. He wrote about lynchings in the U.S. during Reconstruction, the period of rebuilding after the Civil War. Williams believed the news that was coming out of Belgium, the whole civilizing narrative. Williams thought, well, maybe this would be a place where skilled Black Americans could find work that was denied to them here in the United States. So he wanted to go there, see it for himself. He got on a boat and went. First stop, Belgium, to see and interview Leopold for himself. George Washington Williams was charmed by the king, as many people were. He left there feeling pretty good about the whole endeavor until he got to the Congo, traveling by steamboat. And was appalled by what he saw, because he saw evidence of this forced labor system all around him. He wrote what was really the first comprehensive denunciation of this system in an open letter that was published in many European and American newspapers that made Leopold furious. Patrons of this show can hear me read the open letter. I'll have it as a bonus. This open letter was one of the first accounts from someone who had actually been there. He gathered notes for what was going to be a book about what he had seen, but very sadly, he died on his way home from Africa, so the book was never published and his notes seemed to have disappeared. His death occurred in 1891, a full 15 years after Leopold's famous geography conference. The world was still largely in the dark, and it would remain that way for quite some time. It would be a decade before another man picked up the mantle of investigative journalism. A decade. 
And this guy is important. He entered the fray from a surprising place, the very shipping industry that benefited from Leopold's deception. Leopold had given the monopoly on shipping traffic between the Congo and Belgium to a British shipping lot based in Liverpool. And this British company, every couple of weeks, needed to send somebody to the Belgian port of Antwerp to be there when their ship arrived. To check things out, make sure everything was above board. This is where we meet our hero, Edmund Dean Morel, or E.D. Morel. He went to Antwerp and watched as resources came in and supplies went out. Resources came in, supplies went out. Day resources after day in, after day. This was Morel's job, supervising his company's arrangements. Resources came in, supplies went out. And he noticed a curious pattern. When these ships arrived from the Congo, they were packed to the hatch covers with enormously valuable cargoes of ivory and of wild rubber. And he knew that gathering wild rubber was a tremendously labor-intensive process. Finding, cutting, and draining vines, applying it to the skin, peeling it off, over and over and over again. All of those precious resources arrived on ships in Antwerp. But when the ships turned around and sailed back to Africa, they carried no trading goods in exchange. In other words, no merchandise was being sent to Africa to pay for this stuff. Which is weird, right? Because this whole thing was supposed to be about sending missionaries and opening up trade with the African people. But they weren't sending over food and Bibles, medicine and clothing. They were only exporting soldiers and bullets. Ship after ship, soldiers and bullets. Wait, if we're not sending back goods to trade, but we're sending guns, there must be some kind of forced labor going on. And he was right. Leopold was up to no good. It's an extraordinary moment to me because thousands of other people had stood or worked on that dock in preceding years and nobody had put two and two together this way. Or maybe they had and just didn't say anything. Morel couldn't simply accept this and move on. He followed his conscience. Morel went to the head of the shipping line and explained his discovery, that their big client was actually involved in forced labor. However, it wasn't going to be good for business to just stop carrying cargo for Leopold. So his boss tried to promote him to a post out of the country to shut him up. That didn't work. So he tried to bribe Morel. And no, that wasn't working either. Morel quit his job, and in the next few years, turned himself into basically the great British investigative journalist of his time. He became the go-to guy disseminating information about the Congo. And for the next 12 years or so, he produced a torrent of writings uh, about this situation. Three entire books, pamphlets, a cascade of newspaper articles, and it was... Really, he who put this story on the world's front pages. And of course, as any investigative journalist knows, once you start publishing on something, people who see that you're willing to do that, who have information to, to, that's useful, start coming to you. So who started coming to Morel? 
the missionaries who had been seeing all this firsthand. Uh, and they became tremendously valuable sources for him. As I discussed, it's hard for people to know that there is a problem if nobody tells them about it. If information isn't factually gathered and witnesses aren't found. What Morell did was enlist the help of people who could tell the truth about this supposed humanitarian effort. He found sources within these companies who could give him detailed data. Missionaries were an important link because their mail was not censored the way that other workers were. They had their own ships in and out, away from the censors. I know this season has been a bit difficult on missionaries, but this is a moment to celebrate. Protestant missionaries acted as an underground pipeline of information, providing eyewitness accounts, numbers, and even photographs. These Protestant missionaries played a key role in helping the world to see what Leopold was up to. Morell was able to publish volumes of information about these forced labor practices, including some gruesome images that made their way back to Europe. Leopold's forced labor regime that we've been talking about operated with African troops. These were black conscript soldiers under white officers. And the officers were always terrified that the soldiers were going to revolt, which they did many times. And so before any kind of battle or attempt to round up forced laborers or whatever, soldiers were issued a limited number of bullets and were told to only use them to shoot the enemy. And in order to prove that you had used your bullet to shoot an enemy rather than heaven forbid, save it to use in a mutiny or use it to, to hunt some food for yourself, they had to cut off someone's hand and bring in the hand as proof that they had killed somebody. Sometimes they shot at somebody and missed, and then they would, you know, cut the hand off a living person as well. So some of the atrocity photos that fueled this movement were photos of people missing hands. It became one of the most striking images of the movement, piles of hands. Missionaries like Alice Seeley Harris sent pictures to Morell to distribute, proof of the terrors experienced in the Congo. It was through the actions of these brave individuals that the spotlight was shown on Leopold. Famous writers like Mark Twain and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote pieces using Morell's data. Public opinion rose against the Belgians, against Leopold himself. He tried to bribe his way out of it, even in the US Congress but they denounced him as well. So Leopold cooked up fake reports on the supposed humane treatment of laborers in his territory. Just like decades later, tobacco companies faked studies about how healthy smoking was back in the mid-1900s. Leopold's goal was to spread doubt, create confusion. We could learn a lot from people in that era because they didn't buy his obvious lies. Eventually, the international pressure became too much. It was time for Leopold to divest his land in the Congo. His holdings on the African continent encompassed an area 76 times the size of Belgium, about as much land as all of the United States east of the Mississippi, all of it benefiting one person. Leopold didn't simply give his territory over to the people of the Congo. Instead, he sold it to Belgium, his own country, making a handsome fortune and paying off his debts. 
This is where we encounter a real problem with this story, where it doesn't wrap up so easily. See, once he was divested of his land, and once he died even, people assumed the problem was solved. After all, the evil man was dead, but forced labor continued in the colony. By 1910, the world lost interest in what was going on in Congo. I want to remind you that this was only about a hundred years ago. Historically speaking, this was pretty recent. Sure, the world frowned on all-out slavery, but forced labor was another thing. It had been 34 years since Leopold's conference. 34 years! This practice had been going on for decades, and Europeans and Americans just assumed the practice ended with his death. The truth is a lot more complicated. I mean, it usually is. While Leopold's actions were morally bankrupt, he was far from alone. All the European colonies in Africa were based on forced labor up through at least the 1930s, and in some cases, uh, you know, going through the Second World War. If colonial officials wanted to get a road built or something, they conscripted people to do it. It's important to know that other countries used the same forced labor system that Leopold did. Even as they trash-talked Leopold, they were doing the same thing. Uh, Northern Angola under the Portuguese, French Congo, which was across the river from Leopold's uh, Congo, the Cameroons under the, the Germans, and in all these places, the death rate was equally high. That really shocked me. Into the Second World War, the quote-unquote civilized world still relied on forced labor. We'd have been patting ourselves on the backs for ending slavery while ignoring the truth about where our products came from or the problems associated with our empires. We saw empire building as a civilizing force, bringing technology and Western ways to the people. You read this in the accounts of famous folks like Winston Churchill and Teddy Roosevelt, colonizing as civilizing, as Christianization. Really, it was an excuse to overlook the brutal story behind our goods, our ivory, rubber, sugar, fruit, and more. Forced labor changed the face of the world forever. This primitive and horrific method even brought about the nuclear age. 80% of the uranium we used in the American atomic bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki came from forced labor mines in Africa. And we're now talking really about the first decade or two of the 20th century. Um, very few people in Europe or the United States questioned the idea of colonialism generally. Uh, the major European countries, you know, Britain, France, Germany, Portugal, Spain, uh, had colonies mostly in Africa. The United States uh, had the Philippines and had just finished a very brutal war to keep that territory an American colony. People didn't question, in large numbers, the idea of colonialism. But there was something uh, that about this one king personally owning this enormous territory, uh, really the largest territory in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, that 
made him a particular figure of, um, uh, you know, scorn and that people could could organize against. Morel and the other people who conducted this movement uh, tended to downplay uh, or ignore the fact that other countries were using the same system. It seemed easier to uh, attack Leopold, also because Belgium was quite a small country, uh, didn't have the influence over Britain that France or Germany did, for, for example. It was easy for Europe and America to overlook their own transgressions by finding someone else they could scapegoat. This happens a lot in global politics. If your citizens are angry at someone else, maybe they won't see their own sin. So what brought down the rubber trade? A number of things. First, cultivated rubber. Remember, we've been talking about wild rubber in vines. By the early 1900s, farmers had time to grow rubber on plantations, making it much easier to harvest because you didn't have to scatter all over the jungle to look for it. Rubber could be harvested like gathering syrup on a tree farm. Second, the market for natural rubber was on the decline. The invention of artificial rubber was a boon for the world wars where gaskets and tires were necessary for military vehicles. We needed lots of it really fast and synthetics gave us that advantage and dramatically reduced our need for natural rubber. Third, the price crashed in the 1920s. If something isn't profitable anymore, then the supply naturally drops. The fourth reason for the decline of forced labor in the rubber trade is the most significant and much darker. Population loss from this system was so great that you can actually find Belgian colonial officials saying to each other on paper, if we continue the forced labor system with no modifications, we're not going to have any labor force left. And at that point, uh, they began uh, modifying things, and forced labor remained important in the economy, but they began building health clinics and so forth in order to make sure their labor force wouldn't all die off. It's hard to know how many people died in this era of forced labor. There have been estimates, though, including one that Leopold's forced labor system killed as many as half of the people in the Congo. An estimated 10 million people in that region alone. For perspective, Nazi concentration camps killed 11 million people. Leopold was a murderer on par with Hitler. Yet, most of us don't know much about him. When we go on vacation and see the monuments and the roads he built in his country, we don't see those severed hands. Popular culture pokes fun at Germany for their role in the Holocaust. We teach kids to read the diary of Anne Frank. We solemnly tour concentration camps in Germany. And we should. We don't do that to Belgium. How did we forget? It may be because the Nazis invaded during the war. It could be because of that that international opinions shifted from hostile to Belgium to sympathetic. So what became of the Congo? Their story didn't end there even after forced labor dwindled. Well, uh, it's had a very troubled history. Finally, the Belgian Congo became the independent Democratic Republic of Congo in 1960. But independence came after some big demonstrations very suddenly. The country wasn't prepared for it because the Belgians 
had done almost nothing to leave uh, an educated class of Africans who could run the country. There were less than three dozen people in this enormous territory uh, whose population today, I'm not sure what it was in 1960, but today it's estimated 70 or 80 million. There were less than three dozen people who had the equivalent of university education. And this is a territory the size of like the United States east of the Mississippi. The first democratically chosen prime minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, was regarded as much too radical by the United States, Belgium, European countries. And they gave aid to uh, factions who were aligned against him. Lumumba was uh, overthrown after only two or three months in power and was assassinated the next year. And then for many years, starting a couple of years after that, for 32 years, the Congo was under a dictator, Mobutu Sasiseko, who plundered the country even more thoroughly than Leopold had. He had a more developed economy to, to, to rob, uh, received heavy support from the United States, more than a billion in U.S. military and civilian aid over the years because he knew that the way to uh, get aid from the United States was to be staunchly anti-communist, which he was. During the Cold War, the United States sought allies who were anti-communist. That was the primary objective. By being that, this dictator in Congo could get away with whatever he wanted. Remember what I said about fear being used as a way to divert people's attention away from your own sins? That's what the Cold War brought to the Congo the ability to get international eyes to look the other way. As long as they weren't communists, the U.S. didn't need to pay attention. The Congo was turned upside down by the arrival of white explorers, then forced into hard labor, and finally messed up when we overturned yet another leader thanks to our fear of communism. Not unlike what we did in Guatemala. Even today, the region is poor. Here is a country which, in terms of its natural wealth, gold, diamonds, uranium, tin, manganese, coltan that's in all of our cell phones, timber, anything else you can name, in terms of its natural wealth, it's one of the wealthiest countries on earth. But most people are living on the equivalent of two or three dollars a day. A few months ago, I released an episode about how missions organizations export the American way. In that episode, we talked about how we view people in these foreign territories, sometimes with pity and sometimes with paternalism. Good friends of mine have come back from missions trips overwhelmed by the enormity of it all. Others come back shaking their heads. They arrive at the conclusion that abject poverty comes from laziness. Maybe you started to suspect something with these stories I've been telling. This one and the episode entitled Exporting Christian America and the one I did about Guatemala. That one of the reasons these nations are so poor isn't because the people are lazy, but because quote-unquote civilized countries made them poor. We overturned their leaders, put them in forced labor, resisted education. This forced labor system went into World War II. World War II. Then we backed a corrupt leader in the Congo who used the natural resources to enrich his friends, but not his people. The United States overthrew the democratically elected president of Guatemala in 1954, 
putting them into a debilitating civil war under the power of dictators. And then we wonder why they're so poor now and trying to cross into the United States. As hard as this is to say, it's because the civilized world kept setting them back for cheap natural resources. Is it any wonder they're poor? I've been a Christian for a long time, and being in the church for a long time means I've seen lots of slideshows from missionaries and short-term missions workers. Smiling black and brown kids sitting on piles of trash, living without proper sanitation and food. But what caused me so much trouble while I was making this episode is this idea that maybe our people put them there. The British, Belgians, French, Spaniards, Germans, Italians, the Portuguese, various Arab countries, and we Americans. Our relatives from not that many generations ago deeply impacted these countries. I don't tell you these stories to make you sad or to cripple you, or to stop short-term missions. That doesn't accomplish much. But we have this prevailing idea in evangelical Christianity that is toxic. That if you're poor, it's because of your lack of faith, and if you're rich, like so many of us are in comparison to our neighbors, it's because we work hard and because we're faithful to God. That allows us to justify cheap clothing, gold, food, diamonds, and gasoline. It could be that we're experiencing so many blessings because of our relationship with God, or it could be, at least in part, that our recent ancestors held people back to their own advantage. And the difficult question is, are we still carrying on this practice? So when I see slideshows of poor black and brown children, I want to challenge myself not to see just the poverty. I want to understand how it got there. Only then can we begin to understand what we can do to stop it. Not just by sending money their way for food and clothing, but also by understanding that my standard of living might be holding them down. My fear, like my ancestors' fear of communism, may be keeping their countries in turmoil. My inability to see people in power who use Christianity for evil may be blinding me to injustice. My pity may be hurting instead of helping. It is vital that we take the gospel to the world. But if we do it under the guise of economic gain, we may think we're giving them a hand up, when in reality, we may be severing the very hand we wish to help. Special thanks to Adam Hochschild. It was a real pleasure to talk to him. For this story, I mostly referenced his book, King Leopold's Ghost. I'll have links to it in your show notes and on the website. I first heard about him and this story on the amazing Noble Blood podcast and their episode about Leopold. I want to take a moment to thank you for listening. This show is unlike anything else in the podcast world, and I spend a lot of time making it reading, researching, recording, learning. I'm on a mission to provide quality Christian podcasting that treats you, the audience, as intelligent. Together, we are proving that Christians don't have to be anti-intellectual or addicted to positivity that ignores reality. Truce is pulling this medium forward. I could do that so much better if this were my full-time job. Please consider giving via the website at trucepodcast.com. 
This show is a one-man operation. Doing the show full-time would mean more frequent episodes, bigger guests, and eventually, hopefully, a staff of reporters who can go even deeper. With a donation of just $8 a month, you can make that happen. Thank you so much for your support, prayers, and notes of encouragement. God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.